This is Women in a Day, a podcast created to give a deep look at the daily lives of women of all kinds, from sunrise to sunset, with Jenny Halzer and Portia Hensley. Hello, and welcome to the Women in a Day podcast. I'm Jenny Halzer, and today I'm here with Portia Hensley, my co-host, and also Lorena Garcia. Lorena is a seventh-generation Coloradan. Professionally, she is currently running two nonprofit organizations, the Colorado Statewide Parent Coalition and NAMLO International. She serves on the board of Elephant Circle, and she graduated from CU Boulder with a degree in film and received her master's in business administration from the George Washington University. Lorena has a background in policy advocacy and community organizing. Together with her wife, they own a small handmade jewelry business called Amano Things and are usually seen at pop-up markets around Colorado every weekend. They love to explore and go on adventures when they have time. Lorena, interestingly, is an avid comic and graphic novel fan and usually reads multiple series at a time. Hi, Lorena. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. We're very excited to talk to you. We wanted to have you on this podcast because you are pretty much a badass. Ah, You're shucks. only 36, and you've been the executive director of how many organizations? Five. Wow. You're on all these boards, and you still have time to make jewelry and do creative things. It's amazing. Oh, thank you. How do you find the time to do all of that? Well, I'm really bad at scheduling, so I can't say that I schedule it all in. Um, I think it's really just when I I listen to myself, I listen to my body, and when I need to take a break from one thing, I'll do something else. If I if I have an itch to read a comic, I'll break it out of my bag and I'll start reading it, you know. Or if I get home and I've had a stressful day, I'll sit at my table and start making jewelry. And really, it's just how I feel at the moment. What does a typical day for you look like? Um, <clears throat> well, the one thing that I can say that I count on is that I wake up every day between 6 or 7. So whether it's 6.01 or 6.59, I'm always waking up at that point because I always try to get to work by 8 a.m. That way I can have some time in the office before everyone gets there just to catch up on things. So you're running two nonprofits at the same time? Yes. Okay. Um, going to the office you're going to work? When I go to the office, I go to the office of the Colorado Statewide Parent Coalition. Got it. Um, right now we're doing some office sharing. So the NAMLO office has a space in our office. And then I generally do CSPC stuff during the day. When I take breaks, I'll catch up with NAMLO stuff on the weekends or the evenings. I thrive on flexibility, and so if I'm able to have a flexible schedule and allow that for everyone else that works with me, then I think that I'm much more productive in being able to manage all the things that I have to do. And so going back to the question of what does my typical day look like, it's, it's very fluid. I'll have some things, you know, meetings and things like that scheduled or phone calls or you know, Skype visits or whatever. Right. But really, it's it's a lot of just, I make up my day as I go. What are your responsibilities there? I oversee all the administrative aspects of the organizations, um, fundraising, supervision, external relationships, relationships with funders, with individual donors, program oversight, 
those kinds of things. I think it's really interesting that you've been an executive director of so many different organizations. Can you say all five of them? And what qualifies you to lead organizations where maybe you're not a subject matter expert? <laughs> that's a great question because that's a question that I have to I have to answer a lot. So my first leadership position was the state director of 9 to 5 National Association of Working Women. And it worked on issues of um, sexual harassment in the workplace and pay inequity, things like that for women. And then I was also at the same time as I was the state director there, I was the president of the Colorado Women's Lobby. And that was an organization that basically advocated for women's issues at the Capitol. And so um, those two positions lined up pretty well because... You know, with nine to five, I was right. you know doing very focused work on sexual harassment and pay equity issues, and then the women's lobby was a little bit broader. Sometimes it was it included reproductive health. Sometimes it included things like um, safer cosmetics. It always addressed the basic issues that stem from sexism, like pay inequity or um, breastfeeding in the workplace or sexual harassment, things like that. And then I was also the executive director the Colorado Organization of Latina Opportunity and Reproductive Rights, which is Colorado's um, reproductive justice organization. I loved that job. That was so fun. Then I was also the director of Wyofile in Wyoming, which is an in-depth journalism organization, which was also a blast. I mean, Wyoming is awesome. What did that organization do? It was It did journalism, like long-form journalism. Okay. And so... Um, we had reporters all over the state that would create these amazing pieces of, of news. Wildfile was addressing issues that the other news agencies in the state were not because Wildfile was an oh, okay. independent news organization. So it was able to address the oil issues and the, um, the mineral rights issues and the water issues and natural resources and the corruption of politics and all of that that other newspaper agencies were afraid to address. I bet that was so fascinating. It was. I loved it. I was able to do um, a couple series of actually women in Wyoming. And so I traveled the state where I would meet really fascinating women in Wyoming and I would interview them. And I would like write up. I was going to say, <laughs> I know. Wow. Look at you. and we would, I would write pieces on them wow. and highlight them because I had this desire of I want women up front where people can learn about them, very similar to what you guys are doing, especially in a place like Wyoming where there is so much. When it comes to places where it just comes down to hard work like that, there's so much equity. You know, if you're a woman who lives on a farm, you work just as hard. If you're a rancher or if you live in a rural place, yeah, you know, your workload is very equal to what men do. And oh, yeah. So I think that's fascinating. Yeah, it's actually, if not even, if not more so. Right, because right? you still have this typical responsibilities of yeah, the, the house home. and the home and child rearing but oh that's so fascinating yeah. and then um <clears throat> after that i joined another organization i was a communications and development director for Colorado youth matter for a little bit and then i went and took on the executive director position at namlo international and that organization um, does sustainable development in Nepal and used to do it in Nicaragua. The program in the end of June has closed down for multiple factors. I mean, what's happening in Nicaragua right now is a, is a horrible, horrible situation. Uh, if you don't know, you should just 
Google Nicaragua and you'll see that it's, you know, this man that's supposed to be a president is nothing more than a horrible dictator that's killing protesters and kidnapping protesters and trying to do whatever he can to maintain power. So it's a really terrible situation. So um, organization couldn't function. Yeah, so we couldn't we couldn't do work there. Mm-hmm. Like our team couldn't get to the communities where they were going to be offering the services. You know, so it is sad. Yeah. It's really sad. I mean, so we had to let the staff go. Could you just focus on Nepal still? We are. Mm -hmm. Right now we're focused on Nepal. Um, But I intend to, on my own, when the situation in Nicaragua slows down, I'm going to restart those programs and finish what we started because it's not their fault. Their government is so corrupt that we can't get basic materials to their communities. Right. So you um, actually did something really interesting. You volunteered to not get paid for your work. Yeah, yes. Can you talk about that? Yeah. That? So, yeah, absolutely. So one of the things that I'm often tasked for, one of the reasons why I take on a lot of these different roles is because I have a skill set in being able to look at an organization's operations, see how they're operating, figure out where there's inefficiencies, figure out where there are efficiencies, figure out how I need to shift things to make them operate better. Right. And one of the major things that I was coming up against at NAMLO at first was the programs. The The programs needed a lot of work to become more effective and to become more sustainable. Then there was a hard realization that the overhead and the, in, the way that the infrastructure was set up made it really difficult for funders to want to invest in NAMLO. And it's a challenge for all small international development organizations. We had two staff here in the U.S., and we had three in Nicaragua, we had six in Nepal. And even with those numbers, we were still spending 66 cents to the dollar here in the U.S. You know, and that's because, you know, you can't pay a director... Right. Here, what you would pay a director in Nepal. You yeah. know, a director in Nepal makes $700 a month. You can't do that here. Right. You know, so just because of those economic differences and the, the economies of, our, of these three distinct countries, it makes it a challenging situation to be able to effectively have full-time qualified staff in the U.S., to be able to manage the programs in those two countries with the teams in the field. So I had told the board that I think what we needed to do is we needed to eliminate the paid executive director position because that was my salary was the highest expense. And with that, we were not able to effectively send the money that we needed to to the countries. We weren't able to show our donors and our funders that we are actually sending most of your money to the countries. So they said, okay. (laughs) Sure, that sounds great. (laughs) Great idea. Yeah, and so then I went on a job hunt and found the Colorado State Wood Parent Coalition. And interestingly enough, that my dad had founded the Colorado State Wood Parent Coalition about 40 years ago. And so he was the director up until last year of this organization where oh, wow. yeah where there was a co-directorship they went they tried an experiment of a co-directorship and it didn't work out and at the same time that the co-directors were saying we can't do this 
opportunity opened up for me to find something else. And so I was on the phone with my dad one day telling him about Namlo and telling him, yeah, I'm going to have to find something else. He was like, well, I didn't even get to that point, actually. My dad was telling me that he was leaving the coalition's office and he was really disappointed because the co-directorship didn't work. So now they were going to look for a new executive director. And I was like, oh, really? Really? (laughs) (laughs) And then I applied for the job and got the job. So now I'm there. And I think it's working out great because... How long ago? So how long have you been doing both? Since March. Okay. I'm not a subject matter in any of these any of these organizations. Right, you're not a parent. You're, I'm not a parent. You're a dog parent. I'm a dog parent. Not a human parent. <laughs> no. And I've rarely traveled abroad. I've gone to Mexico. I've done like the college Europe trip. You right. know, I mean like So what makes you qualified to do all this? Yeah, it's you know, I think a lot of it comes down to how well you're able to manage people because one of the things that I think is a misconception is that an executive director has to be the expert in all things and no way that's why you have staff I know you got your MBA pretty recently yes so I'm sure that that has helped you be a good and effective executive director but you were a director before you got your MBA so how did you learn how to do this and how old were you when you first had your first leadership position 25 25 years old yeah like how did you learn this because there are women who are listening to this podcast who want to be an executive director of something or just a leader in some way like what did you do to get there I observed okay I observed a lot I saw what my bosses did did you always want to do that or did it just fall in your lap you know I think to some extent Yes, and to some extent, no, because I think I had dualities inside me where one part of me was like, I want to be just like my dad, and the other side was like, I don't want to be anything like my parents, Right. you know, and so, but I think at some, to some extent, I've been following down the path of my parents for my whole life, you know, and I saw what my dad did, I saw what his jobs were, you know, the coalition was run by volunteers for probably 25 years. And then it became an actual established organization, maybe like the last 15 years. I could be wrong. It could be 20 years. I don't, I don't know exactly. You know, so he also did multiple things where he, you know, he had a job, but his passion drove him to doing multiple other things and building up other organizations. You know, so it's just something that I always saw is what you did in life. You know, and my mom was a teacher. And so she was, and she was a teacher that was like, probably one of the most dedicated teachers that I've ever seen. She was fully invested. Fully invested. You know, she would do house visits. She was always on the phone with parents if their kids didn't show up. Like, if she saw a kid that was struggling, she would call the parents and say, okay, I'm going to come over. I'm going to help your kid. You know, like, she was there early. She stayed super late. She didn't care about the fact that, you know, that she was only paid for a specific amount of hours because to her it was my job is to educate these kids and I have to do whatever I can to educate these kids. Wow. So seeing that selflessness or seeing that that investment that they have to just throw themselves into what they do, I think was pretty inspiring to me. So to think of if I ever, I don't, I don't want to say that, yes, I, my goal is to be an executive director. Everything about me was always, I have to be just doing something for, you know, marginalized communities, for underserved communities, you know, for, for underrepresented communities. And however that took place, it just happened. 
Where did you find your passion for serving underserved communities? In elementary school, I was lucky to go to this elementary school, Uni Hill Elementary in Boulder, because it was a exponential school at the time, exponential learning. And it was very, you might call it hippie if you wanted to. And I was tasked with a friend of mine to to write the school creed. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't I had no idea what it was. What they explained to me was like this is what this when we want when we want people walking into our building, this is the type of people we want to walk into our building. So then me and my friend Rico, we were like, okay, what do we want? You know, we want people that believe in equity, people that are not racist, people that are not sexist, people that love each other, people that are kind. You know, it's like we made this like creed and it's still there in the school. Wow, that's cool. And then that's very cool. You know, being like a I was such a tomboy. And so I was so tired of like everything that I wanted was pink or Barbie or like I didn't want pink and I don't want Barbies and I don't want any of that stuff. So in fourth grade, um, we had back in the day when science fair existed. Yeah. Me and my friends, we did a science fair project on how toy companies marketed to kids. So we went to all these different toy stores and we would write, we would like take notes on like what kind of kids were on the cover, like their genders, their races, you know, and we would rank every single toy company based on their racial and what we now call a racial and gender lens. But back then that that language didn't exist that's, yet. That's wild that you were doing that so in elementary school. <laughs> totally. Yeah. So it just, I don't, passion, I don't know if, it, if I gained it more so than I just always had it. It's almost in your DNA. Yeah, I think so. But you went to school for film, to do film. Yes. So why were you interested in film in the first place, and then what deterred you from that path? Well, I always felt that film was the greatest storytelling medium that existed. I still think so. And I always thought that storytelling was the most effective way to change hearts and minds and to expose good things and to expose injustices and Mm -hmm. so I went to film school so that I could become a filmmaker and make these glorious magnificent films that would expose injustice all over the world and change hearts and minds I love it (laughs) I I tried I tried and made a few I worked with different centers different counties and made some films but ultimately I It came down to when I was graduating from school, I was kind of having one of those like freak out moments of like, oh my God, I am not going to be able to make a living doing film because it's nearly impossible to make a living doing film. And I did, you know, I was, I've hustled my entire life. You know, I had a job when I was 14 and, you know, I was wanting to like figure out how do I make ends meet. And I didn't want to do that after I graduated. I wanted to believe that when you have a college degree, you're going to get a good paying job. So I got a job as a community organizer for an organization that worked with immigrant parents on how to navigate the education system here. Which is such a, I mean, that, that is such a huge there's such a huge need for that and I think about that a lot what that must be like to have so many concerns as an immigrant parent and to try to be figuring these things out yeah even if you're like whether you're documented or undocumented just the the fact that you're a Latina and if you have an accent you're automatically pegged pegged as something you know whether it's pegged as undocumented Mm -hmm. pegged as ignorant you know, pegged as as lazy, pegged as whatever you want. So because of that and because of that stigma that exists, I mean, 
why would parents want to put themselves at, at risk of being berated and being treated meanly? And then on top of that, it's just the, the access to information back then was not like it is now. You know, not everyone had, you, don't have, you didn't have smartphones back then, so you couldn't actually Google on your phone, like, how do I go, like, what's the principal's number or things like that, you right. know? So it just was, it was much more complicated and there was a lot more of social issues that prevented Latina parents from being involved. And on top of that, I mean, schools, some schools are really great with family engagement and some schools struggle a lot with family engagement. You know, the idea of having parents involved, it can be scary to a lot of schools because with parents comes critiques, mm -hmm. comes, you know, judgments, right. you know, I can understand it. Like if you're a teacher and you're a professional teacher, why do you want this parent telling you that you're teaching wrong? You know, and and so there's all this like there's these preconceived notions of what involvement and what engagement can do. And so because of those fears on both sides, it doesn't really happen. So what does the Colorado Statewide Parent Coalition actually do? It's interesting how now I'm with the CSPC, with CSPC, because it's very similar to what my first job was. Mm -hmm. um, the coalition's mission is about um, engaging Latino families and parents in their children's education to close the achievement gap. And so the way that the organization does that, does it multiple ways. It does parent trainings. How do you be engaged? How do you help them with their homework? What does the school system look like? It does um, school trainings with the administration and teachers. How do you effectively engage Latino parents? And then um, it also works with child care providers. Um, its flagship program right now is called BASO Providers Advancing School Outcomes. And so it trains all these informal child care providers that most of the Latino community uses because they're either the neighbor, their family, or their friends right. on how to actually also be educators. So they're engaging in early childhood education. So that way, by the time they get to kindergarten, they're at their same level as their white peers. That's huge. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. How many people are in that community, would you guess? I don't mean to put you on the spot, but... Oh, God, I have no idea. Thousands and thousands and thousands. Yeah, because if it's a statewide organization, that's, yeah. I mean, that's incredible. Yeah. That's a, that's a great resource for people to have. Mm -hmm. How do you find those educators? So we have three tias, Spanish for aunties. Um, we call them tias because it's a little bit less um, intimidating. You know, and so they're the coordinators, they're the teachers, they're the recruiters. So they go out and they um, recruit and they get all these women, mostly 100% women so far, into these courses, which actually last 15 weeks. They go through 120 hours of training. How do they have time oh. to take away from their business? They make time because it's investing in their Is future. It, it can be at night. Some We have two sessions at night, and then we have one session in the, in the day. Because some take care of kids at night, you know, so they can go during the day, and some take care of kids during the day so they can go at night. Oh, it's wow. like the Peace Corps, almost. The TIAs are like the Peace Corps volunteers. Oh, I don't know anything about that. <laughs> <laughs> were you a TIA, Portia, when you were in the Peace Corps? Or TIA. <laughs> oh, my that's awesome. And they're like, no, that's fail. No. <laughs> Portia, Portia. <laughs> that's funny. Well, they go and they do, like, community events. 
anywhere where they know that there's going to be a large group of Latinos and they recruit there. Wow. How do they build trust within that community? Well, that's one of the reasons we, we work with immigrant. Like, our tias are all immigrants. Okay. Um, because that, off the bat, builds trust. Yeah. Lorena, can you tell us about a failure or two that you can think of that you've had? Because you've had such an interesting, varied career with, I'm sure, a lot of successes. What's a failure you've had that you've learned from? Gosh, I mean, I've had so many, so many failures in so many different areas. I mean... Or how do you respond to failure? What do you do to pick yourself up and keep going for the organization? You know, one of the one of the things that drives my wife crazy, but that she also absolutely loves and adores about me, is that I'm super resilient. You know, something happens, and I bounce right back up, and I'm like, well, okay, so let's learn from that, let's move on. You know, and so... Why does that drive her crazy? Because she sometimes wants to, like process it more and talk about it more and analyze it more and I'm just like no I got it let's just go come on yeah this happened now let's go and I get it you know and I think that's one of the ways that I deal with failure whether it's a legislative failure or administrative failure or a programmatic failure or a PR failure I brush it off really fast and I learn what I can from it and I might not learn anything from it until months later. Right. But I just accept, okay, but I can learn something from it, now let's move on. And there's no point in me wallowing it or perseverating in it because that's not gonna help me move forward. And on top of that, I mean, I don't have the luxury of the time to perseverate on failures. I wish I did sometimes, I just don't. And I think there's probably, in what you do, there's just an inherent amount of risk. You know, you have to be creative with how you're allotting resources and time and dollars. And you have to be, and with that creativity comes the risk that it may not work. And Very much. And I have an extremely high risk tolerance. Most of the people I work with, most of the boards I work with don't. And so that often brings some, some levels of conflict where um, other people that, either work with me or that I work for or that I'm leading have much lower risk tolerance. So what's an example of something that you have really spearheaded that has been successful that had a very high risk or was really out of the box? Well, for example, at NAMLO, we had been working on this project for a few years. It was working with individual families on their nutrition and installing greenhouses, giving them greenhouses so that they can improve their nutrition. And that program wasn't doing well. It wasn't an effective program. And I didn't, when I got to the organization, that program has already, had already been happening. So when I went to Nicaragua to visit the program and to interview the families and to figure out, is this working for you? Is it not? It was very, very evident that it just wasn't working. So we were in the middle of a grant cycle. We had just received several large grants for that program, and given the mission of the organization, I took a massive risk in ditching that program and starting a new one. And it was risky because we potentially could have had to give the money back if the funders weren't on board with, with the reconstruction of the project. And so that one, it was really scary, but I was confident that as long as we stick to our mission and our core principles of doing community-led projects, right? then the funders are going to believe that we're still maintaining our integrity 
with their dollars and and prevent and, and providing these services. So what did you do instead? Um, we created a really awesome program with the with the communities. Um, it, it's a circular economics program, and so basically it means that all of these these four communities that we worked with are these small, tiny, little isolated communities in Nicaragua, and it's really hard to get to them and get out of them just because of terrible roads and their distance. And so instead of trying to figure out how we can help the larger cities benefit from whatever they produce, we created a program with them on how to build their own small microeconomies. So where if each one of us is in this community and I grow potatoes and you grow onions and Portia, you grow cabbage, instead of trying to sell all these vegetables externally, how right. can we sell them to each other, enrich our nutrition and build our, our economics, our, our economies? You know, and so cool. we that were is. able to, it, it has been really successful, which is why it's even more painful that we've had to put a, an in, in, indefinite halt on the program right now. When they probably need it most. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's tough. Do you think in the last couple of years it's become much harder to be responsible for a nonprofit just because there's so much need that's now being highlighted in so many different areas? You know, I think yes and no, because when I started as a director, within the first two years, I was faced with our greatest recession we've ever known. True. (laughs) And so having to survive through that and figure out how to, like when everyone's pocketbook is shrunk, cut in half, some have been obliterated, how am I going to keep these organizations surviving? I think what's challenging right now in the last couple of years is the attention has gone away from programs that have been long-term, that -hmm. have been working, that have that have a history in the communities for newer programs that are coming into the communities that might seem more innovative or that might seem more exciting or sexy to to fund. And that's hard, you know, because it's this idea of how do we all work together instead of this this person starting a new organization, why don't you go figure out what's already happening and work with them instead of starting something new and taking away resources. And that makes total sense. So that's that's been the challenge, I think. So, Lorena, knowing what you see through your work, would you ever consider running for office? Yes. And it's taken me a long time to say that because I've been asked to run for office for a long time. I think the first time I was asked to run was in 2007. And I just keep saying, no, 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 I'm... I'm a, I'm a stronger advocate and activist than I would be in office. But right. I think that, um, I think now I'm at the point where I'm seriously considering it. So what do you think you would be most interested in running for? I don't know. I mean, what's challenging with the whole running for office thing is, you know, where you live, what are the seats that are opening? Right. Do you want to challenge an incumbent? Do you want to, do you want to challenge for a primary? You know, there's all these things that I'd, I don't know because you know the the representatives that I have, the senator that I have, the con- the congressman that I have, they're all doing fine. Right. You know, so that's and challenging. Yeah, and so I don't, you know, I don't know when, I don't know for what. I think I'd have to wait and see what what opportunity presents itself. 
What's the best piece of advice you've ever received? Oh, my godmother is this fantastic woman. Um, and I was walking into, I was getting ready for an interview. And she told me, she's like, you just walk in there like you already have the job. And I thought, yeah. And so that's, I take that mentality everywhere, not just for job interviews. Do you ever come off too confident or cocky? Oh, I'm sure. I'm told that all the, I'm told that all the time. Not even just a job. I'm told, I'm not told it all the time. I'm just kidding. But I'm told that several times. That, really? That I can be, that I can be really arrogant. But do you think that that confidence has helped you? It absolutely has. You it's know, a blessing and a curse. Yeah. And do you think it's a different perception because you're a woman? Do you oh think my you gosh. Carried that yeah, I was going to say. Can we yeah. say that? That and also because I'm a Latina? Yeah, because, because, like, yeah. Oh, yeah. oh my gosh. How dare yeah. you? <laughs> who do, like, truly, who do you think you are? Absolutely. To, yeah. Well, I've, I had this group of friends. I still have this group of friends, but we haven't seen each other in years. We would get together probably once a week. We were all directors of organizations at the okay. same time. So we'd get together. We were all four Latinas to, like, kind of be a support group. And each of us were often asked, like, God, how do you guys do it? Like, how do you, like, you know, you guys look so confident. looks like nothing ever phases you. And me and one of my colleagues, we just kind of looked at each other at one point. We're just like, we fake it till we make it. Yeah. You know, and that's when you, you know, it's the idea of the questions earlier about well, how am I qualified to do this work? And I fake it till I make it. Mm-hmm. Well, you're also really smart. <laughs> and I think two people just don't. That. I think people forget sometimes just how pervasive the old boy system, the good old boy system is. You know, when you think of nonprofit organizations, you want to think of that it is so much more diverse. And it's, I just, in my experience, my limited experience, that is not true. And that it's still all roads kind of lead to this same infrastructure that's been around for decades. Well, 2% of nonprofits are run by Latinas. Wow. Yeah. And I think 0.5% of all philanthropic dollars go to. Latino-led organizations. Do you have uh, a network that you can access, a support network? Yeah, you know, I think right now I really rely on my family for support. With networking, I mean, it just comes inherently with the job. You know, it's just every meeting that you go to, like you'll build some sort of rapport with somebody and what are you doing to ensure that that number increases? Oh my gosh. Okay, so <laughs> I I think one of the things that has been missing in in our world has been mentorship. Um, yes. Women haven't been mentoring women. Men haven't been mentoring women. I mean, and ultimately we have to start with who's in charge. Like men need to me- mentor women so that right. women can be in charge. Yes. And then women can start mentoring women, you know, and so I find it's the men with the most confidence who mentor women. I think you're absolutely right. Yeah. I agree with you. Yeah. Oh, that makes total sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're yeah. not threatened. They don't They're feel not like they have any knowledge. Prove. They're not mm-hmm. it, you know, it's not there's not that fear. Right. I really strive to find women, young women that I can mentor. I I hate to say this and I know that it's always the burden of minority populations be it people mm-hmm. of color or women or anything, but you do have a responsibility. And I know that that's very controversial of like, why is it my burden to help other people? But you are a success. 
you are a role model and an example and you can bring up all those other little Lorenas. So I actually don't see it as a burden. Okay. I think it's our obligation. We don't have a choice but to do that because like you can't learn to be a physicist if a physicist doesn't teach you how to be one. Right. You know, and you can't just expect someone else that looks, you know, that drops something and says, oh, it fell to the floor to be able to teach you that. So I think in that respect as people, when we've experienced things or when we're labeled or when we're marginalized or whatever the case is, we have an obligation to talk about what, what that means and to educate other people about what that means. Yeah, it's controversial. I was just listening to the This American Life podcast with the talking about the Starbucks training, the racial Starbucks training. and I'm rolling my eyes. They went into <laughs> the Starbucks I had high hopes. And they they showed that there was a bunch of white people with a couple people of color and all of the burden and responsibility of teaching fell on those people and yeah. <laughs> on the people on, of color yeah the people of color the token which they like i think part of them liked the opportunity to to speak their mind and they were given a forum to do so but also it was there it was like all right now you need to teach us so it was kind of like this weird catch-22. It's the whole, like, please be the spokesperson for your people. Right. And that's a what an that's awful... That's not what we're saying here, I think. No, no, no right. not at all, but I'm just saying, when people right. are put on the spot like that, right. you know, it's just, it's that's nothing good can come from that on either side. But you're bringing people up, I think. You have an opportunity to bring people up to where you are. I'm trying. I have a couple mentees. That's so, great. yeah. Can you mentor us? <laughs> You're amazing, Lorena. You are. Thank you so much. Do you have anything else you want to share or last words of wisdom for our audience? Maybe a young girl out there listening, a little Lorena. For anyone listening, whether it's young or old, I mean, opportunities come our way, whether we seek them or not. And anytime they come, always seize it, you know, because... That's mostly how I've landed in every position I've been in, is that the opportunity presented itself. That's great advice. I love that. That is. Dun, Thank dun. you so much. This has been Women in a Day. Thank you so much for listening. You can find us on Instagram at Women in a Day Podcast and also on our website, womeninadaypodcast.com. Please go to the website because we'll be linking to some of the organizations that Lorena talked about. And I think we need to get a picture of that cute little creed that you made in your elementary <laughs> school. I want to see a picture of it. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me.